Good morning. If you haven't yet, please make sure the sermon outlines are passed down the aisles. We'll be going through those today. And also, please make sure you've got your thumb in Hebrews, the first chapter. Uh, we'll come back to that in just a second. We'll refer here and there to a few passages um, along the way, but we'll primarily uh, spend most of our time in Hebrews, the first chapter. <clears throat> so it's 2011. Can you believe it? I'm glad you're here today to kick off the year in perhaps the most important way you can, which is to worship the creator of the universe. I'm excited about what we're doing now in Hebrews. We're starting a 16-week series through the book of Hebrews. We're going to spend a lot of time looking through this very deep book. It's a great way for us to kick off 2011 in Hebrews. And I want, to, I want to start off by answering the question, why study Hebrews? Hebrews is a thick book, friends. It's a thick book that a lot of preachers, maybe including me, um, avoid for a long time in their preaching careers. It's a thick book. It, it's the, the New Testament book that uses the Old Testament more than any other book. It refers back to the Old Testament, tells a lot of the stories, alludes to what's going on in the Old Testament. It assumes a lot of prior knowledge about Jewish history. And so we'll point out those kinds of things along the way. But we could list tons of reasons why we should study Hebrews. There's a site that I like called Bible.org, uh, www.bible.org. Um, by the way, I've listed some good resources at the bottom of your sermon outlines there. Uh, Hebrews is the kind of study that may require you to do a little bit of homework here and there throughout the week in order to make sense of some of the things that we're talking about and to reiterate and keep fresh in your minds the themes that we'll be talking about in Hebrews. On uh, Bible.org, I found an article that listed 13 different good reasons to study Hebrews. And as it turned out, the, those 13 points were a part of a sermon. And uh, I, so those people had to suffer through 13 different reasons uh, to study Hebrews. I'm going to give you one today. One main reason to study Hebrews, and this will serve as our basic introduction to the main themes and the context and the purpose in Hebrews. A lot more of that is on the back of the outline if you want to read those things later. Some issues like who wrote Hebrews, to whom was Hebrews written, why was Hebrews written, those kinds of things you can look at in more detail on the back of your outline, uh, especially if the sermon drags and you get bored. So here are the first few blanks in your outline, number one there. Here's the main reason we study Hebrews. Hebrews highlights the superior person and work of Jesus Christ such that we are prompted to draw near to him with confidence. In a nutshell, that's the basic theme of Hebrews. It highlights the superior person and work of Jesus Christ such that we are prompted to draw near to him with confidence, with boldness, with assurance. Outside of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is no book in the New Testament that places the spotlight more directly on Jesus than Hebrews does. In the book of Hebrews, in fact, it's precisely because of the person and work of Jesus that we are enabled to draw near. 
Listen to this great verse. It's in Hebrew 10, 19 through 23. We may end up memorizing some of this along the way a little bit at a time like we did a couple series ago. Uh, It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Leave that slide up for just a second. Go back. Sorry. Or go to the blue screen. That last part of verse 22, I believe. Oh, I'm sorry, 20 that we just, uh, no, I'm right, 22. It says to draw near. Well, look in your Bibles, if you can. <laughs> it says to draw near with a true heart in full assurance. That sounds to me like the kind of person who's following Jesus with passion. And that's the main theme we'll talk about in this series, is how is it that the work of Jesus Christ enables us to live the Christian life with passion, with what we call here a true heart, with full assurance of faith. It's only because of the person and work of Jesus that we can do that. That leads us to the sermon idea, the big series, I'm sorry, the series idea, which is the next blank there. The series idea is this. Skip ahead. Jesus is superior, so follow him with passion. Jesus is superior, so follow him with passion. That's it. Short and sweet. That's the main theme of what we'll talk about for the next 16 weeks in lots of different kinds of ways. When you read that and you see that and you think about that, you may say to yourself, like I first think, of course he is superior. Duh. That's why I'm here. Jesus is superior. I've known it from childhood. I've known it from birth. I've said it aloud in VBS since as far back as I can possibly remember. But the second part of that main theme for our series is what about that following with passion part? Does the superiority of Jesus Christ mean that you are learning in your life to forsake all the other things that compete for your heart's affections? Is Christ's superiority the basis on which you live your whole life? Not just your Sunday morning smiley face, but the rest of your week. You see, it's easy to sit in the pews and to give intellectual assent It's easy to agree to the truth of Jesus' superiority. Of course he's better than everything else. Satan knows that, though. The demons know that. But it's a whole different thing altogether to live your life and to operate under what that truth means and to order your life around the truth that Jesus is superior. One of the questions that Hebrews prompts us to ask is, are you and I, are are we fair-weather followers? Is your faith and your trust in Christ strong enough that difficult circumstances in your life will not defeat you? Do you trust him enough that you will worship and adore him when you don't have a job and things are tight? Is Jesus still superior when you don't have enough savings and you're heavily in debt? 
Is he superior enough in your heart and in your life that fishing and hunting and sports don't push your relationship to him to the margins of your life? Is he that superior? Hebrews is asking, is he trustworthy enough that you have learned not to fret when physical pain and suffering are close at hand? Hebrews wants to know if your faith is fair weather or if it's passionately devoted to Jesus Christ, no matter what the circumstance. And as we study this great book, we'll know with more clarity and more depth how and why Christ's superiority makes him worth us following with passion. One last thing before we jump into the first four verses of Hebrews here. It's important each week in this series to know the larger context of what we're talking about in Hebrews. So I want to challenge you during this series to simply take a little bit of time each week to read through the whole book of Hebrews. I want to challenge you to read through Hebrews one time a week before we get to the service on Sunday. That will give uh, you some insight into what we're talking about on Sunday and make you aware of the larger context of what's going on. By the time you've read through it 16 times, <laughs> Jesus' superiority will be clear in your head and hopefully also in your heart. So I want to challenge you to do that as a way to bolster your faith at the beginning of 2011. Let's go ahead and pray before we dive in. Lord God, we come to you today, asking that your word, both in what you've written on the page and in the person of Jesus Christ, would inform and instruct us, but would also inspire us to live lives that are ordered around your superiority to all things. And so we ask, Lord, that the truth of your word through your spirit would speak to us, that you would continue to speak to us as you have been for so long. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The last, last blank there for your outline is today's sermon, Big Idea. The main thing we're talking about in this sermon today is this, that the person, work, and words of Jesus Christ are the culmination of divine communication. Culmination of divine communication. Culmination is a word that simply means the highest or climactic point of something. Especially something that's attained over a long period of time. It takes a while to get to culmination. It's the highest and climactic point of something especially attained over a long period of time. That's straight out of the dictionary. So what we're saying today is that the person, the work, the words of Jesus Christ are the final consummation of divine communication. We could talk a lot about what that means. But let's just jump in to talking about this culmination, the personification of Jesus as God's Word. Any of you, uh, any of you ever been, like me, uh, diagnosed with the foot-in-mouth disease? <laughs> Your laughter gives you away. It's a malady with which I have been personally afflicted for at least some 30 years, going way back to elementary school. 
I ended up receiving treatment for my disease quite a few times in the principal's office, it turns out. <laughs> Apparently, and I, I remember some of this. Apparently, I had a pretty decent gift for making innocent bystanders cry with my words. There was my friend Sergio that I called something that I don't even, I don't even know what it meant. But I'd heard it, so I said it. And apparently, it, it was not nice. That was one of my first times of going to the principal's office. And he ended up crying quite a bit. And I felt horrible. Not sure why, but I said something wrong. There was also my neighbor. I remember distinctly, Nada Salazar. Uh, she and I sat on the steps. And I remember telling her, I couldn't have been more than seven. I remember telling her that I didn't really like her. And so I didn't want her coming over anymore. And, <laughs> and that ended our relationship. There was also the, uh, the bully. I can't remember quite his name. But there was one of the school bullies that, that somebody had to stand up to. So I took it upon myself to do that. Um, and apparently he didn't like being verbally assaulted because he threatened basically to kill me. And, uh, and true story, I had to end up giving him my granola bar every day at lunch for the rest of the year so that he wouldn't beat me up. Have you ever felt, ever felt that helpless feeling of empty words coming out of your mouth like a flock of birds flying away, out of reach for you to grasp and to put back in? It's a helpless feeling. When something comes out and you instantly think, oh, what am I saying? I was talking to somebody just this week who made the, oh, you're pregnant mistake. <laughs> you know the situation. It's when you say, when's that baby due? And there's no baby. Have you ever made the mistake as I have? I've also made that mistake. Have you also made the gender mistake? <laughs> there is no recovering from that. <laughs> Credit to Brian Regan. Uh, that, that is the helpless feeling of empty words coming out of one's mouth. If you're around people like that long enough, you begin to realize that you can't really trust them. Because something crazy is going to come out. Something unexpected. Sometimes it's just bizarre and weird, but sometimes it's mean. Sometimes it's downright hurtful and destructive. Because, friends, our words... Our words hold great power. They can convey truth and bring healing and provide encouragement. Or they can spread disorder, disunity, pain, and hurt. Often when we speak, <laughs> I'll speak for myself, often when I speak, bad things seem to happen. But when God speaks, good things always happen. His words are infinitely the opposite of empty. Infinitely the opposite of empty. They work. Isaiah 55 is a great passage. It says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's words, his speech is powerful. 
Powerful in ways that we can only begin to think about and to imagine. We're talking about power that creates the worlds and the universe. They've just discovered with a new telescope that is 700 times more powerful than the Hubble telescope that there are supermassive black holes, the size of which they never imagined, that have what they call little jets. And inside those jets, the wind speeds that create energy are going at more than 3 million miles an hour. God's word makes jets go 3 million miles an hour. His words, his speech, they hold such power that every single microscopic piece of matter in the entire universe awaits at his beck and call for instruction. At every moment of every day, throughout the entire history of all creation, every single piece of matter has been, presently is, and will be, depending upon the power of his word to sustain it. And the first few verses of Hebrew here, just in the first two verses, state this truth with power and with eloquence and with beauty. It states this truth about God speaking with beauty and eloquence. The kind of beauty and eloquence of a really good sermon. A good sermon whose carefully chosen words would have been recognized by the first hearers. They would have heard this and the preacher would have stood out, looked with dramatic suspense over the congregation, and would have said these words at the beginning of Hebrews that started to ring in their ears of the power of the word, polymeros kai, polytropos pali. It rings, it rhymes, there's cadence, there's alliteration. It's a beautifully spoken language. And in this first verse alone, there are five words that start with the letter P. There's repetition of pronouns and of participles. There's a sequence of time from pre-existence to Jesus' incarnation to his future exaltation. And there's a contrast between the way God spoke then and how he speaks now. We're still in verse 1. It says this, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God's speaking is not new. He used to speak to our fathers. Some translations say ancestors or forefathers. He used to speak by prophets, by people who verbalized or wrote down God's truth on his behalf. In the Old Testament, in the past, or as my version here says, long ago, it was at many times, and it was in many ways. But it was incomplete. It wasn't everything. It wasn't the final word. Back then, as we see in the Old Testament, God's speaking took many different kinds of forms. Prophets, writings, voices, events, visions, dreams, stories. But now, verse 2, but now, in these last days... In other words, in the days after the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom, he, that is God, has spoken to us by his Son. He has spoken to us most clearly and most directly in his Son. So Jesus Christ, Hebrews is telling us, God become human flesh is the climax, it's the culmination of God's speech and his speaking. Everything has been coming up to this point. We see this contrast 
here in these first two verses. I want, to look, want you to look at this next slide here. And notice some things about the structure in these two verses here. First it says that he spoke. And now it says he has spoken. That word he has spoken is actually the main verb of this whole section. It contrasts how he spoke long ago and how he speaks now in these last days. It also says he used to speak to our fathers, to our ancestors. Some versions say forefathers. But now he speaks to us. And then the mode and method of communication by the prophets and now by a son or or by the son. So Jesus is contrasted here with God's speech as the final and full last word. I want to give you a couple little Bible nerd notes here. One of the Bible nerd notes is this. In that second verse where it says he has spoken to us by his son, those two words, his son. Where it says his son or, or the son in most of our English translations, there's actually no definite article. There's no the in, in the original language. What that basically means, without going into too much nerdiness here, is this. It probably could be said that now he speaks to us by a son. And in the Greek language, that's a way to emphasize the manner in which the speech happens. So he used to speak this way, but now he speaks to us in a son. How does God speak now? In a son. I'll leave the other Bible nerd notes for you if you want to ask me later. There's a whole lot more cool stuff that we could talk about in these first four verses. Um, Let me just run through a couple points of note here. In verses 2 to 3, in that whole section from 2b through through 3, the author of Hebrews is pointing out the various ways in which Jesus is the superior and the final culmination of God's speech. He just lists uh, item after item as evidence of how God is superior. I'm sorry, how Jesus' speech is superior to the prophet's speech of old. He says that Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has the authority and weight and power. In other words, Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity who acts in perfect accordance with the Father's will and who has all power and authority in the universe. When you look at Jesus Christ, you see what Hebrews tells us is the exact imprint, the character of and nature of God himself. It's sort of like this t-shirt that I received for Christmas. I'm actually wearing it now, but I'll spare you from that. I have a picture of it up here. Uh, This is one of my favorite uh, presents for Christmas. My, My daughter Sophia gave this to me. It says, Daddy's greatness is huge. And huge is in big, uh, big colorful letters. I know where she got this. I didn't tell her to write this, I promise. (laughs) When you look at Jesus, you see God. You see his greatness. But contrary, contrary to my daughter's daddy, his greatness really is huge. Huge beyond measure. That's why Jesus is superior. He's superior and better 
Because unlike the revelation of the past, a shrouded revelation that's occasional, that's incomplete, unlike a pillar of cloud that we have to follow here and there, we have a better revelation that comes to us in an actual blood and flesh person. Jesus is the personification of God's speech. And the person, the words, the work of Jesus Christ, they all stand as living testaments to the greatness of God the Father. It is because of that final and full revelation of Jesus Christ that we can, in the here and in the now, live with abandon and passion. Fully trusting that a life of passionate devotion to God's way is worth it. There was one day when a father and a son were out in the country and were climbing around in some cliffs, And the father heard a voice from above yell, Hey, Dad, catch me! And the dad turned just in time to see his son Jack joyfully jumping off of a rock straight at him from above. Zach had jumped first and yelled second. Both the father and the son uh, fell to the ground in laughter. and For a moment, the the father could, could hardly respond. When he found his voice again, he gasped and he said, Zach, can you give me one good reason why you did that? And Zach responded with remarkable calmness. He said, sure, because you're my dad. Zach's whole assurance was based on the fact that the father was trustworthy. Zach had decided he could live life to the hilt because his dad could be trusted. How much more true is this for us as followers of Jesus, the final and full revelation of God's speech to us? We are called, we are created to be little Zachs, jumping from cliffs and throwing ourselves into life with full force, knowing that our Heavenly Father is trustworthy. He did what He said He would do. He laid down His life as a sacrifice for us and rose from the dead three days later. If Jesus can do that, then surely you and I can live with abandon and passion, trusting that He will do what He says He will do with us. The message of Hebrews, friends, is that that Jesus comes to us as the final word, as the last word, as the first word, and he is trustworthy, then surely you and I have nothing to fear. Surely you and I can live a life that's full of passion and devotion to Jesus Christ, forsaking all those other things that push Jesus Christ's devotion to the margins of our lives. That's what Hebrews wants us to learn in 2011. And it's a good lesson for us. And I'm excited about going through Hebrews with you as a church family. Let's go ahead and pray.
Lord God, we are gathered in your name, asking that you will continue to speak to us so that we will have the faith and confidence of knowing that you've gone before us, paved the way for us, become the sacrifice for us as the great high priest so that we could live lives here dedicated to you, passionately devoted to the things that you call us to, forsaking all else and leaving it behind as rubbish so that we can count you as number one in our lives. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. If you're looking for a church home and you're a baptized believer in Christ, in just a moment as we sing, we'd ask that you come forward and put your stock in us at First Christian Church as we try to develop a place where we learn to live life to the hilt because of Jesus' work for us. Or if you'd like to publicly name Jesus Christ here in the waters of baptism as your Lord and Savior, then we ask that you would do that as well as we stand and as we sing.